You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. How are you? It's good to see you again. I do appreciate, Mikhail, not introducing me as a guest, because uh, this is home. Christy asked me this morning before uh, I, I was walking out, as I was walking out the door, what's it feel like to be preaching this morning at BFC? Does that feel weird? I said, actually, it feels very comforting. It just, it feels like this is, this is where I'm supposed to be, and, and I know God has made other plans for us and for BFC, but thanks for feeling more like home than uh, another church to preach in and uh, for being a refuge for us. We, we do live here in Oklahoma City now. We're not home very much, but uh, when we are home, BFC is our church home. So I uh, appreciate Pastor Rick inviting me to come. Christy and I leave tomorrow for a, a, a long trip. We'll be gone for... Uh, more than a month. In case you're not familiar with the way the Church of the Nazarene is organized, we have local churches like BFC, and there's somewhere between 25 and 30,000 of those churches around the world. And then we also have districts where we get all uh, groups of churches together. Then we have regions where it's groups of districts all put together. And then we have global areas. And there are six general superintendents. Uh, Each of us has a world area that we oversee as well as a a part of the United States and Canada. Right now, Christy and I are in jurisdiction over California and New Mexico, Arizona, parts of southern Nevada, um, Hawaii. Somebody's got to do that part too. So that's, that's a good part. And then over Asia Pacific, which is very... Uh, fun for us because we'd never been to Asia before. We've been now to probably 12 or 13 countries since January. And that's everything from Korea to Japan to China, Thailand, Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, all of the South Pacific. So we are learning a lot. Prior to uh, going to Asia Pacific, we spent the first five months in this office over Mesoamerica, which is Central America and parts of the Caribbean. And of course, most of the people there speak Spanish. How many of you speak Spanish? Okay, four of you do. That's good. Um, Christy and I wanted to learn some Spanish. You know, language is a big deal trying to communicate with people. So we started working on that a little bit. Our son Ben gave us some things online we could listen to. And And there was a couple traveling with us on that first trip. We went to Cuba. We went uh, all through uh, Panama, Guatemala, different places. And the name of this couple were called the Goritas. But I thought that they said their names were the Gorditas. (laughs) So I was introducing them all over the place as Mr. and Mrs. Gordita. And people would laugh nervously like you're laughing right now. And... And finally, after doing that nine or ten times, somebody had the the courtesy to come and tell me, you do know you're calling them chubby little girls, right? (laughs) So uh, we've given up on Spanish. We've moved now to Mandarin. And uh, Christy and I have eaten food that we've never eaten before. You know, you're growing up in Oklahoma, and it's pretty much you eat a lot of stuff. It's all fried. But... You don't eat a lot of sushi and things like that. And we we do like sushi. Our friends, Lola and Tammy, have introduced us to sushi. But, you know, the sushi we eat here is like just little tiny bits of fish, you know, in some kind of a a roll type thing. But in Asia, sushi means eating big fish fillets raw. 
And the bigger, the better. I mean, the, the, the more elaborate it is. And so, you know, for a kid from Bethany, Oklahoma, that's a real stretch. But I do have a secret for how to eat big chunks of raw fish. So if you ever, if you ever are having to put in that situation, first of all, uh, lots of soy sauce. That's a, that's a helpful thing. And the other thing is, don't chew. Just go ahead and, go ahead and let it go down and you'll be fine. And lots of power bars. That's the other way you survive. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about over these last 15 months is, what is the church? We, we talk about the church a lot. We talk about our church being BFC. But when, when you consider, what does it mean to be the church globally? What, what does it mean to be the group of people that are, are speaking on behalf of God? What, what does it mean to be that? I think for most of us, we have, we have a theology. And you know that theology is what we think about God, the study of God. We have Christology. Which, is, which are the things we think about Jesus. We have pneumatology, which is what we think about the Spirit. Uh, we have soteriology. That's, that's what we believe about salvation. And we have things like eschatology, which are things we believe about the way the world's going to uh, last things. And so we have all of these ologies. And when you put them all together, you have something that this is what we believe. This is who we are. But I'm finding more and more that the one piece of it that we don't talk about very much is what about our ecclesiology? Ecclesiology is what do we believe about the church and who we are? And that's something that I've been giving a lot of thought to. And so I want to read a passage of scripture for you this morning from Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, it's a very famous passage, uh, one that we use a lot. In fact, uh, in 2009, we celebrated 100 years of, as a church here at BFC, and we had a great celebration. In fact, we did a five-year countdown until 2009, and I actually preached on this, uh, this text on that day. But the more I thought about it, the more, the more I felt like there are some new insights here that I want us to think about collectively as you're thinking about your mission and some of the great things that, that Pastor Rick and the staff and the church board are presenting to you just some, just some things for you to think about. So would you stand, please? Let's read from Matthew chapter 16. And I want to read verses 15 through 19. The context of this discussion is that Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They're on a mission trip, so to speak. And they're walking by a mountain area called Caesarea Philippi, a very famous uh, Roman city that was known for its worship of the gods and it was in that context that Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And this is, what he, this is what happened. Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? Not what does everybody else say, but what do, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar means son, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So good job. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. And so we all say together, thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words uh, to be written down thousands of years ago. And we believe that the same Spirit who inspired them can now help us to understand them. And so we ask God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you will speak to your church today. We are your church. And we pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This is one of those passages of Scripture that one, one scholar said, it's, it's a truth that's greatly reduced. And what he meant by that was not to say that, that this is not true, that this is, this is not a very strong truth, but he, he actually said the opposite. And he said that this is such an important thing for us to understand. But the problem is, is that either we're too familiar with the passage, so we've reduced its truth, or we're not familiar enough with what it really means that we've reduced its truth. But, but either way, sometimes we, we probably don't fully grasp the power of what Jesus is saying here. But it's so important to understand because this is a message from Jesus about the church. He gives us here three things. He gives us a clear definition of the church. Secondly, he gives us the idea that there's going to be constant opposition to the church. But he also tells us and he promises us there is certain victory for the church. And so let's talk about that. What's the definition of church according to Jesus? What is the opposition to the church? And what's the victory of the church look like? Not just for BFC, but for the church around the world. All right, so let's think about that. Jesus said... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some of you may know this is the very first time in all of the scriptures that the word church is used, and Jesus is the one who uses it. He invented the word church. The, the, the word church is two Greek words that are stuck together, and the full word is ecclesia, is ecclesia. That's where we get our word ecclesiology, study of the church. But one of those words is ek, which means out of, E-K, ek. And the other word is klesia, which means to be called and sent. And so Jesus' definition of the church, if you want to know what it is, is that you are the ones who have been set apart by God, called to be his people, and then to be sent out as his ambassadors to the world. That's what church means. And Jesus is the one who defined it. See, sometimes we get this confused. We think about church as a building. and we, This is one of the most beautiful church campuses in the Church of the Nazarene, and, and we have a lot to be proud of. But surely we don't mean when we say church that this little building on 39th Expressway is church. We're not talking about a building. We're, we're talking about a people. And one of the things that I've learned maybe more than anything in the last year and a half is that we've got to stop talking about the church as a place we go. And we've got to start talking about the church as a people we are. So that wherever you are, whether it be in your, in your classroom or whether your office building or your neighborhood or whether it's when people are trick-or-treating in your neighborhood, that's where the church is. Bethany First Church is not just what happens here on Sunday morning. It's what happens wherever you are, wherever you go. And we confuse that sometimes because we say things like this. Come with me to church on Sunday. But what we don't mean by that is come with me just to a building. What we're talking about is come with me to a group of people whose lives have been transformed by the power of God's grace and who will love you and accept you and receive you and help, help you as you're in your transformation process too. 
That's what Jesus said. I have called you out. I have set you apart. And now I am sending you out to be your church, the church in the world. You are the ecclesia. You're the body of Christ. You're the bride of Christ. Wherever you are, that's where his hands and his feet are at work. That's a, that's a world-changing understanding of what the church is. The church is not a place. The church is a people. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, let's talk about this word hell for a minute. Hell is another Greek word. It's the word Hades. Turn to your neighbor and say Hades. Hades was the ancient people's way of talking about two things. First of all, it was talking about a place of death. And so in that regard, hell is a real place. But it was also their way of talking about the powers of death that were at work in the world that were opposing the good things that God has brought. And so when you're talking about the gates of hell, this is a metaphorical way for Jesus to talk about not just the place, but the things that are opposing God's purposes. So you could think about it this way. If God is a God of life, which God is, then hell, the gates of hell, are those things that oppose God's life with death. And if God is a God of love, which God is, then hell is what is opposing that love with fear in the world. If you want to talk about fear, it's not rooted in God, it's rooted in the powers of hell. God is a God of freedom, and so hell is about oppression. Wherever there's oppression in the world, it's because hell's, the gates of hell are at work. So are you with me? Hell is a place, but hell is also about the powers of death and destruction that would ravage and destroy the things that God has made good and beautiful. So we have two things. We have, we have the definition of church. You are the ecclesia. You are the called out ones who have been sent. We have uh, the gates. We have hell, which represents the powers of death and the work that oppose God. But now look at this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I have a confession to make. There were years and years and years that, that I had a certain understanding of what this passage meant. And here, here, here was the image I had in my mind. That, that there, there was this force in the world called the gates of hell, and, and it, was, it was kind of opposing the church, and and chipping away at the church and battering the church and, and hurting the church. But, but somehow, because Jesus is building his church, that, that we would be weak, we'd be struggling, but, but somehow God would help us prevail and give us strength to withstand all of the attacks. You know, are you with me on that? Sometimes, that's kind of the image I had. In fact, we used to sing a song about that that said something like this, the anchor holds though the ship is battered. Uh, the anchor holds, though the sails are torn. So, and that was the image I had in my mind of this, this battered, weak church, but with a strong Jesus. But then one day, I, I got to thinking about what Jesus was saying about the gates. In fact, it was as I was preparing for our 100-year anniversary that it was just like a lightning bolt that hit me. It dawned on me that gates are not weapons. Gates are for protection. Now, I know I'm a little slow. I don't know why it took me 45 years to figure that out. But, 
Gates are not weapons. I mean, when was the last time you watched a war movie and some general turns to his lieutenant in the middle of the battle and said, okay, they pushed me too far this time. We're bringing out the big guns. Go get the gates. And don't make me go get the gates. Now, you never hear that. Why? Because gates aren't weapons. Gates, you don't attack somebody with a gate. What are gates for? Gates are to, are to protect you. Gates are a defensive measure. They're not offensive. Okay? I played football in, in my younger years. I know football's not this kind of a sensitive subject today for Sooner fans and Cowboy fans, but I happen to play on the side called the offense, which if you don't know what football is, offense is just the part of the team that's trying to drive down the field against the defense who's trying to keep you from scoring touchdowns. And the job of the offense is, is to penetrate the weaknesses in the defense if there are weaknesses and then just kind of attack them. Okay, so you could say it this way. Offense is advancing. Defense is entrenching. Offense is pushing forward. Defense is trying to push you backwards. All right? So offense is moving ahead. It's aggressive. Defense is protective. Are you with me? Now let me, let me go back to one more thing real quick. In the ancient world... If you had a city, you had to have walls around that city. Because if you didn't have walls, you didn't have a city for very long. Because there were people who wanted to attack you and take over your city and take your stuff. And so you built this city with a wall, and there was two ways to get into the city. One way was you could climb over the wall. But that was a bad way to go. I mean, you had to have hundreds of men to go over a wall because there would be people at the top dropping stuff on you, rocks, you know, big... Uh, pouring hot oil on you, shooting you with bows and arrows. And, and there was like, there was hundreds of guys that got killed trying to go over the wall. But if you really wanted to penetrate a city, if you really wanted to get in, you tried to find the weakest link. What's the weakest link in the city wall? And it was always the gates. If you could get through the gates, you could get into the city and infiltrate the city. It was vulnerable. So gates are defensive, Gates are closed. Gates are locked. Gates protect. Gates, gates keep people out. Who is Jesus saying is on the defensive? Who has the gates here? Somebody said Jesus. Yes, the answer is always Jesus in church. <laughs> Hell has the gates. Hell is the one that has the gates, and so who is on offense here? Jesus, thank you. <laughs> Good answer. It's the church. Jesus is giving us an image here of the church on offense. The church is the one attacking hell. It's not the other way around. The church is driving back the gates of hell, and hell is not surviving the assault. And I missed this point for so long that the ecclesia, you... You're the called out ones. You're the sent ones. You're on offense. Somebody say it. You're on offense. And the powers of death and the powers of hell and the powers of the grave will eventually crumble at the forward advance of the church of Jesus Christ. It's inevitable. Now, the reason that this is such a reverse for us is that this is a new image. When we talk about spiritual warfare in the church, a lot of us in the Nazarene church, we don't talk about spiritual warfare much because... It, it was sometimes think, well, that's talking about there's something, something under every chair and behind every bush. That's not what we're talking about. 
But when we talk about spiritual warfare, often it's about what it's about evil attacking us. It's about hell attacking us. And therefore, we measure our level of spiritual warfare ability as our ability to resist the attack. Now, stay with me for just a second. Here's what we've said very often in the church. If you don't steal, if you don't lie, if you don't cheat, if you, if you pay your taxes, and you generally avoid doing bad things, then we call that success. We call that holy living. And, and I'm not taking anything away from that. There's some truth to that. But here's the problem. For 18 years, I was a pastor, and I noticed that I had a whole lot of folks in my congregations who were not doing bad things. They were resisting all that bad stuff, and yet they were still as spiritually dry and defeated and discouraged and without joy and even cranky and no more like Jesus after the attacks than they were before, even though they didn't do anything bad. See, what I'm trying to say is, this is part of what it means to be advancing the mission of God. You and I are not simply given the ability to avoid evil. We're given the ability to do what's right. We're given the power to do God's work in the world by advancing the light and pushing back the darkness. The church is on offense, which raises a really important question. How are we to be the church? How is the church to be pushing ahead and advancing forward? Now, this is very cool. Take a look at this next passage. You, you ought to underline this passage in your Bible. It's the one, the keys of the kingdom passage. There it is. You, you ought to memorize this because if, if you get this, it's going comp- to revolutionize the way you think about who you are as a Christian. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven... And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, now keep looking at that for a minute. Let me talk about it for just a second. I don't know for sure what all the keys of the kingdom are. I, I think this is way beyond me. But I do know two things that Jesus is saying that, that I think is really important for us to understand. First of all, it's the keys. So whatever this is, this isn't something incidental, this isn't something trivial, this is something really, really important to understanding how heaven's power gets unleashed on earth. So that's the first thing I want you to see here. The second thing is, whatever Jesus is talking about, what he's saying to us is, the church can do the mission of the church with absolute assurance that heaven is on our side. Again, it takes me a while to understand things. So I thought Jesus would say the opposite of this. I thought he would say, whatever is loosed in heaven, the activity of heaven, that's what's going to be loosed on the earth. And whatever is bound up in heaven, that's what's going to be bound up on the earth. Did you notice he said the complete opposite? He said here, whatever you are binding on earth, whatever you are binding on earth, that's what's going to be bound in heaven. And whatever you're loosing on earth or unleashing on earth, that's what's going to be unleashed in heaven. That's what I thought he was going to say. And then I got to thinking about the church again and and some of my experiences. And I can remember so many times there were people who had come to me as their pastor and they'd say, Pastor David... 
I, feel, I just feel like a weak Christian. I feel discouraged all the time. I feel defeated. I'm depressed a lot. I just feel anemic. That's kind of how they would say. And rarely would I say back to them, what have you done wrong? Because most people kind of know when they've done something wrong. It's like, I feel distanced from God because I broke one of God's laws. But that's usually not the reason most Christians feel discouraged. It's because I would then come back to this question. What are you doing to advance the mission of the kingdom of God? Because according to this passage, power is not promised to us just to kind of hang on. Now, there are... There are certain situations where if you're in a very stressful, persecuted place, yes, you need power to hang on. But for most of us, we don't need power to maintain what we're doing. I mean, we've got just about everything we need and want. And there's not power from the Spirit promised for that. But what there is power promised for is, what are you doing to advance the kingdom? What are you doing that is pushing out of your comfort zone? What are you doing that's taking great courage and faith on your part? And when you do that, when you start pushing back the gates of hell in your, wherever you are, all of a sudden, what you're unleashing on earth, heaven says, God says, they need some power for that. So you're binding it up here, and heaven says, we're binding it up here too. And we're unleashing it here, and heaven says, I'm going to give them power to do that now. If you want the power of the Spirit unleashed in your life, you've got to take some risk. You've got to do something that is way out of your comfort zone. You've got to push back. You've got to push back the gates of hell. That's good preaching. So the keys of the kingdom is the authority to be charging forward with God's redeeming, restoring, renewing vision for the world. And that's the reason why the church, especially the church of the Nazarene, goes to the darkest, most anguished places in the world and society, and we announce the love of God there, and we announce the power of transforming grace. And when we do, here's what Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. That's the vision of the church. You know, those early Nazarenes, I love those guys and gals. They were such risk takers. They didn't lie down in a foxhole and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and wait for Jesus to come back. They were charging the gates of hell. They were going where nobody else was willing to go. They were doing what nobody else was willing to do. And I want to tell you something. Nazarenes are still doing that. I can't believe I'm running out of time. I talked to you a minute ago about being in Asia Pacific, and that's an amazing part of the world. Half of the world's population lives in that little tiny window. And it's hard to be a Christian in Asia. The strength of world religions, when you talk about Islam, you talk about Buddhism, you talk about um, Hinduism and Confucianism and Taoism and tribal religions and all kinds of uh, worship of family, all those things. Those aren't just little minorities in Asia. Those are strongholds. Indonesia is an example. Indonesia, the culture is 98% Muslim. 98%, which means we're just not talking about a, a religion. We're talking about a way of life. If you become a believer in Indonesia, if you become a Christ follower in Indonesia, it means your whole life. You know, we, we have a Nazarene work in China. A lot of people don't know that. But 
But we've had a Nazarene work in China long before Mao Zedong came along with the Cultural Revolution, and we had a strong group of Nazarenes there. And we never called ourselves the Church of the Nazarene because you couldn't have denominations, but we called ourselves the Holiness Network Church. At Church. And, and we left that group there back in 1949. Most of you weren't even born then, but we didn't know what was going to happen. We just left that group of Nazarene Christians there. And then for decades, decades went by into the early 2000s. And finally, some of the oppression started to lift and we went back into China. And in what was an incredibly emotional moment was when one of our general superintendents went and he found that there's still a remnant of people. In fact, there wasn't just a remnant. There was a thriving, growing church that was there and house churches. And, and they embraced each other. And this is what they said. The, the guys who were there at the very, very beginning, they said, number one, we knew you'd come back. And they said, number two, we've tried to do things the way you taught us to do them. And they were doing more than that. They were thriving. Take a look at this picture. This is a picture of a guy named Paul. He's the pastor of the largest evangelical church of nearly 1,000 people in a town of 10 million. I'm not going to tell you which town, but his name is Paul. He's known all across China. In fact, he's known probably more than he should be by the Chinese government. But they are pushing back the gates of hell in serious oppressive situations. People in China, some of the older Christians in China, my brother and sister, they talk about times they've spent in jail and prison like we talk about going to potlucks. Talk, one, one woman was sitting there, a Nazarene woman who'd been there a long time and numerous times had been in jail for her faith. And, and someone said, I'm so sorry you had to spend all that time in prison. And she said, oh, no, no, no. Every Nazarene needs to spend little time in prison. She said, it's good for you. It, it deepens your prayer life. It, and you can, you can have prison ministries. You can do things in prison. You can't. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sitting in a house church situation. And, and there's, you'd be amazed at how many young people are coming in. They believe in holiness. They believe in, in, in Jesus. And they're there and they're learning and they're growing. And, and one Nazarene woman starts to pray before in Mandarin. And she's praying and you can't tell what she's saying and so you lean over and you say to somebody next to you what what is she praying she just said may satan be embarrassed in the heavenly realms by what happens in this place today you want to talk about pushing back the gates of hell you want to talk about unleashing something on earth God willing, we're going to be ordaining our first Nazarene pastors in China in a very short time. Look at the next picture. This is a picture of someone in Vietnam. The man there sitting in the chair, he's, he's nearly 100 years old. He's a layman who was a good Nazarene layman who was put in prison for many, many years for his faith. Young pastors in Vietnam to this day, Nazarene pastors, are regularly interrogated and persecuted and arrested and beaten. Now, now I want to... I want to say something here. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings because when I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me. But sometimes people will say to me, what's the difference between the church in places like Vietnam and Indonesia and China and, you know, places where it's hard to be a Christian and places like this? And, and I don't think I have all the answers and, and I know there's a lot of good things going on in, in places like ours, but here's what I figured out. When, when Christianity is just kind of a, something that everybody's supposed to do and it's, and it's just almost not even blessed, but it's like expected, I've noticed there's a lot of Christians who just think about Jesus like an accessory in their life. 
It's like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is a good part of my life. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do that, I do that. And I go to church. That's how they think. But that's an accessory. You, know, you go to a place like Vietnam where there's people who, it, you take your life in your hands to say you're a believer. You're, Jesus isn't an accessory there. Jesus is your life. It's, who, it's what you're thinking about as soon as you wake up. It's what you think about all day long. It's what you think about when you go to sleep and you dream about it. It's Jesus is your life. There is nothing else. And they have so much to teach me. I'll tell you one more quick story. Look at the next picture. Donald Hanna is a Nazarene chaplain. He's the guy in the beard. Nazarene chaplain who was in Vietnam during the war and served in the U.S. forces there. And, and after he retired from being a chaplain, he got this burden for Vietnam. And he, he went back to Vietnam and he, he just said, Lord, what can I do here? And he started going through the city of Ho Chi Minh and he, and he saw hundreds and hundreds of street kids. And his heart went out to them and he said, Lord, I make $16,000 a month with my pension. But I, if you'll give me help, if you'll, if you'll give me what I need, I will, I will build a home to, to begin to help these kids who are malnourished, who are living violent lives, who, who don't have a safe place to sleep at night, and who certainly aren't hearing about Jesus. About a year after he prayed that prayer, he found out that he had contracted Agent Orange from the Vietnam War. And so all of a sudden, his pension that was $16,000, now the U.S. government was paying him uh, a medical disability retirement of $75,000. And so he already knew how to live on $16,000, so he said, all that extra stuff that I can use to build a home for children. And that's exactly what he does. He spends all of his money providing this home. And those boys who are the oldest teenagers there, those are people who have been in his home now for maybe the last seven or eight years. They were about the size of those other little guys when they came in. Christy and I, it was an emotional moment to get to sit in those rooms and hear those boys talk who had been taken right off of the street in Vietnam, snatched out of the, the jaws of hell itself. And boys now who love Christ and who are going to be leaders in Vietnam. I want to tell you something. This is who we are. This is what it means to be the church. We are moving forward. We're taking risk. We got to take some chances. We got to get creative because we're on offense. We're not on defense. And one more thing I want to say. I, I wish I had about another hour to talk to you. I know I don't. There are some people today who are trying to, to kind of get us distracted from all of that. And they're trying to say things like, these are perilous times. We should really, this is not the time to take risk. I mean, look at what's going on in the world. There's there ISIS in the Middle East, and there's Ebola in West Africa. The economy is just tanking. Uh, people can't, I mean, this is not the time to do anything risky. This is the time to, to get entrenched. This is the time to buckle down. This is the time to protect our assets. And these are good folks. These are Christians. But they're living in fear. They're living in frustration. And the way they think about church is defense. They think church is defense. That's not what the church is. The church is offense. The church has to take risk. We're the ones who take care of orphans. We're the ones who start after-school programs for kids who have nowhere to go. We're the ones who help people and celebrate recovery. We're the people who look out for people who, who are in poverty and single mothers. And that's who we are. Thank you. I like the hallelujahs. 
We're about setting people free. We're about going to the hell holes of the world and saying, you are not alone. Jesus has not left you. He loves you. He redeems you. He can transform you. And I know you've, you know this, but let me say it. As somebody who loves you, a general superintendent in the church, I'm going to say it out loud. The goal of the church of the Nazarene is not to perpetuate an institution. The goal of the church of the Nazarene is to follow Jesus into his mission in the world, period. Look at this quote. C.T. Studd said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. C.T. Studd wasn't a Nazarene, but he should have been. Let me, the church of the Nazarene needs more studs. I just said that. <laughs> when did we start believing that God wants to send us to easy places, safe places to do easy things? When did we, when did we start thinking that way? God wants to send us to dangerous places to do difficult things, impossible things. And the promise for us is when we stop managing the minutiae, when we stop just managing the machinery and we start taking risk and we do things that are out of our comfort zone, that whatever we begin to bind on earth is bound in heaven and what we start unleashing on earth is unleashed in heaven. And we need more daring people with courageous plans. We need some people who are more afraid of missing opportunities than of making some mistakes. And we still need some BFC Nazarenes who are more afraid of eternal regrets than of temporary failures. And when we do, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.